You look nervous, Bob. Here we go. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth grow strangely dim in the There's just something about music that sets the tone for a message. Let's pray. Loving God, uh, this is your word. Uh, you, you gave it to us. It's your gift. We need it. We are your children. We need to be fed. So please feed us all and let us leave your table today filled uh, and ready to serve. In Christ's name, amen. No bones about it. I'm preaching out of the book of Ezekiel. It just happens to be that that's where I happen to be at this particular time, and I usually preach from wherever I happen to be at that particular time in, in my journey through Scripture. I, I will, however, in spite of the sermon, sermon title, not be preaching on the Valley of the Dry Bones. It's just too tempting to go there. I'm not going to be preaching on chapter 28 on the King of Tyre and Lucifer and the fall from grace. I won't be talking about the wheel and the wheel uh, I'm sure you all heard sermons on those before. No, I'm sort of be going over the whole book because there's something about seeing a book in its global sense to give you a sense for what the prophet was trying to communicate to us. Because everything that was written before, as I understand scripture, was written for us. You know, be thankful I was in Ezekiel and not in Numbers, perhaps, or... Leviticus or something of that nature, although there's plenty of things to preach at in there. I'm one who believes that the good news 
is everywhere in Scripture, even in the book of Ezekiel. And if you haven't read the book of Ezekiel recently, it's a tough book. It's a tough book to read. Not only because uh, it's a prophetic book, it's just there's just so, so much tough stuff in there. It's like God has declared war against everybody. And we'll get there later. Because in order to find good news, it's like when people go to the book of Revelation, they say, it scares me. And yet somehow the book of Revelation is a book of good news. It's a, it's a testimony of Jesus Christ. It tells us about Christ. So if we're getting lost amongst the beasts and the plagues, and we've missed the point of the book. So here we are. The message of Ezekiel, the core of the message, the good news. Pull out your Bibles if you have them, because we'll be going back and forth in the book of Ezekiel. Trying to find the non-negotiables. You've heard the term before. Everybody has non-negotiables. I remember when my son was growing up, Reuben, when he was growing up, anytime he wanted for me to um, grease the wheel, as you might say, he wanted money, he wanted allowance, he'd always say the same thing, Dad, Dad. I don't smoke, I don't drink. And you go down the litany of all the things he didn't do that he felt were the non-negotiables for me. And as long as he didn't do these things, he was in good graces. Well, obviously the non-negotiables got to be more than the things we don't do. I said, you know what, the non-negotiables would be closer to Micah 6.8. I think you read the text this morning. Act justly, love mercy, walk humbly. Those are my non-negotiables, Reuben, I said. That's what defines who you are. Um, everybody has non-negotiables in education as my kids were growing up. Do what you have to do before you do what you want to do. Good rule. I always told them. Ask questions. The only dumb question is the one that is never asked. Those things, non-negotiable. As you're growing up, as you're doing your work, as you are tempted not to do your homework, I said, remember, you either do it now or you do it later. You're one of two groups when you leave school. You're going to be the group that says, oh, I, I wish I had. I wish I had. Or you're going to be the part of the group that says, I'm glad I did. I'm glad I put the time in. I'm glad I invested. Non-negotiables. Theological non-negotiables? Well, 1 Corinthians 3.10. I think that's sort of much. Find it with me if you'd like. It's one of my favorite passages and texts of Scripture. Um, only because it says something that a lot of people don't want to hear. Because in an age where everybody wants to be right, where everybody has the monopoly on all truth, 1 Corinthians 3 puts us back in context in terms of what the non-negotiables are. This is Paul speaking, 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 10 and on. We're not going to read the whole passage, but it simply says, according to the grace God gave, has given me a, a as a wise master builder, he says, I have laid the foundation and another built on it. What does it say? But let each one take heed how he builds on it, for no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. That's the non-negotiable, he says. Other people will build on that. But notice what it says. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious metals, wood, hay, or straw, you notice the quality has gone down. The foundation is still the same. Everything else will be consumed. All those things you consider so important for you, that's what you build on the foundation. Just don't compromise on the foundation. 
Everything will be consumed. There is non-negotiables even in, in God's terms. There are things that, that you, can, you can argue all your lives over and you may never agree. But don't compromise on the non-negotiables. Choose carefully what those are. Matthew twenty two thirty two. Jesus, in answer to the question, what's the commandment? He says, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart and your neighbor is yourself. That is it. That's the whole law into two. From, that, from those two hinge everything that you will learn from me. Non-negotiable. What's the old adage? People don't care what you know unless they know that you care. It's wrapped up in that. Love God. How do I love God? Love people. Non-negotiable. We may disagree on others. Thus the things we build on the foundation that Christ gave us. So what about the non-negotiables in the book of Ezekiel? What is it there that we find that is so essential. Now, ultimately, if you read the book of, of Ezekiel, I wanted to say Ecclesiastes, the book of Ezekiel, I mentioned there's no bones about it. It's, it's a hard, tough book. It, it, it sort of reminds me of, of my home growing up. Uh, a lot of punishment, a lot of wrath, a lot of anger, um, a lot of threats, a lot of destruction, some of it caused by us, some of it caused by my mom that was trying to raise four boys at the same time. How did she do it? I don't know how she managed to survive, pretty much telling us not to do anything. Don't run, you'll fall. Don't ride your bike, you'll get run over. Don't jump in anybody else's car, you'll have a crash. Don't swim, you'll drown. Don't climb the tree, you'll fall off. It's like everything we couldn't do. Now that was asking for trouble because you know if you tell a boy not to do certain things, what's he going to do? He's going to go try the very thing you said, don't try it's just a rule. We learn we're born with that, that uh, recessive gene. Well, there it is. My mom tried. Just get a sense. The, 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 the word wrath appears 34 times in, in, in Ezekiel. Destroy, 19. I won't even talk about destruction. Anger, 22 times. Love, three times. Well, wait a minute. Didn't you say this was going to be good news? Well... Sort of like my home, one of the rules that you learned in Ecclesiastes is that everybody, God is pretty even-handed in terms of who gets it. Everybody gets it. The South gets it, Babylon gets it, Ammon gets it, Moab gets it, Tyre gets it, Egypt gets it. Everybody's going to get it. Everybody is within that, that framework of punishment, of anger, of wrath. But you know what? Sort of like home, when everybody, when somebody got in trouble, four boys, everybody got in trouble. If anybody got in trouble at school, and back in those days they used paddles, I had much experience. I tell people I had a lot of experience in the principal's office before I became principal. Usually growing up, I became quite acquainted with those paddles back in the days when you could use them. Well, the tragedy at my home is that I got paddled at school. I'd come home, get paddled again, because somehow there was uh, some aesthetic value in getting beaten in both places. But it went beyond that at home. I mean, if one of us got in trouble when we got home, then everybody got in trouble. I remember quite well that one time when my oldest brother, Ernie, bless his soul, uh, lives in Fresno now. He was the resident uh, romantic in our family. Let's say that. He was the oldest. He was, at, in his own mind at that time, I was still kind of young. He was getting older, getting to his 11, 12. So he'd already, by that time, discovered the the joys of, of romanticism and, and, and girls and stuff like that. It was, it was a tragedy for me as being that young. 
but he, he felt, I remember, he was, he was basically a divine gift to all females at that age. He'd comb his hair, he'd put on the stinky stuff that made him supposedly more attractive. It was a disgusting display. But which, neither, neither here nor there, except when it impacted me. And on this particular month, and you've got to understand, I said mom, four boys, uh, living off the skin of our teeth in government housing. I remember it well. Holly Lane, Redlands, California, wrong side of the tracks. I remember the day that the earth almost ended. The world as I knew it almost ended. The telephone bill arrived. And the amount, this was back in the 60s, the amount of this telephone bill was $367.54. I remember it well because it would jet in my mind because my mom repeated it many times in Spanish, I want to tell you. I remember her saying, I won't repeat everything she said, but come into the room and let's talk. And one by one, she put us in the room. Who did, who did this? Who did this? Who made these calls? Here, 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 long distance, here, long distance, there. Who's this? I call all these numbers. They don't want to talk to me. Just a bunch of girls. And he, it was, nobody would fess up. Nobody. My brothers had this pact, and I think I've mentioned this before. All three of them born in September. September 8th, September 11th, September 13th. I was born in March. That should tell you everything. Three and the boo-boo on the other side. I was the youngest of the four. Now, they had this pact that they would never, obviously, betray the trust of the band of three brothers. Thus, the only way to maintain that bond was not to tell little brother anything. So they all knew. They all knew it was Ernie. If I'd known it was Ernie, I would have turned him in. But no, they all held true and sure enough at the end of the interrogation, independently, in pairs, trios, all four, nobody fessed up, and I, I had no info to turn in. Well, everybody, everybody experienced the joy at the end of the day. You know how Louis was saying, be joyful in all situations? Well, we experienced much joy that day at the hand of my mother. Many different ways. Here it is. It's, it's, it's my home. Everybody. But you know what? You know who got it worst? Read the book of, of, of Ezekiel. Israel. The lion's share of the, of the wrath, of the anger, of the, of, of, of the punishment, of the threats, apparently are aimed at Israel. And I've got to ask the question, what's going on here? This doesn't seem like good news. Why would, why would this be in here? You're talking about wheeling. Well, that's kind of confusing. You're talking about bones flying all over the place. That's kind of scary. And then you're talking about Tyre. That's like, that's like Lucifer. Where's the good news? It's got to be in there somewhere. Thus the four points that I want to give you that will help couch all this information, hoping to find some good news. Begin with me. Number one, and this came up in Sabbath school lesson this morning. Number one, God is God. Can you say amen to that? Because the only other option is I, you are God. That's scary. God is God. Read the book of, of, of Ezekiel and you will find the word sovereign Lord over and over and over and over again. Chapter 6, an example. He repeats various times. Read through the chapter. You will know that I am God. You will know that I am Lord. The sovereign Lord has said so. So he sets the tone. I'm God. Get used to it. Get adjusted to the concept that, 
that I am God. He is God, as the song says, and we are not. That's good news, quite honestly. Remember, we were created in His image. To have God in our image is idolatry. And there's plenty of uh, references to idolatry in Ezekiel. And it's not good. Because idolatry is creating something or making ourselves. God becomes us. We become God. He looks like us because we made him up that way. Not because he created us in his image. Well, strong things to say about those who get it backwards. It's in the Ten Commandments. It's in Romans 2 when he talks about those who have transformed God's glory and have begun to worship images of what they believe to be God's glory and, and the consequences of doing that. It's not good. God is. He is the I am. He is the almighty. He is the infinite, the inscrutable, the, the, just the eternal. That's God. That's who he is. Now, that is good news, but but some of you, I'm sure, and we're going to address that a little bit later. He is everything that we are not. He is perfect. He knows all things. And quite honestly, I'm not sure about you, but I'm glad that I'm not God. Try to put yourselves in that position and you'll understand. Now, my life as a principal has taught me a lot of humility. I thought parenting had taught me humility. And those who are parents know that being a parent has got to be the most humbling experience in the whole, in the whole world. I thought that was the case. Being a principal is even more humbling because you're supposedly in a powerful position, but you have no power. You really don't. Uh, kids run from you. They hide from you. They escape from you. They, they drop pictures of you with horns. You know, along the, along the road, you've experienced all things, things that you didn't mean to say. You say, and then the, it, 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 oh, bad news just travels everywhere. Guess what Mr. E said? Things you never said are said. Mr. E said I could. I remember hearing those things. I said, when did I say that? He says, well, it just happens. Now, being in a position of power, and the greater the power, think of the responsibility. It's just amazing. But I've learned my limitations, my mistakes, my, my choices are not always good. It's just the way it is. That's why I'm so delighted today to say that I am not God. I'm not. You're not. God is God. Let's not forget that. Number one. Number two. Good news, number two. God is passionate. I like that. If you read the book of Ezekiel, God is described as a passionate God. Now, yes, you may, you may disagree with the way he expresses such passion. You know, you, you find a lot of anger and wrath and, and, and loud uh, prophecies against such and such and these people and, and, and the glory leaving the temple. There's so many illusions. But from a certain perspective, to know that God is not a wimpy God, that God is not an indecisive God, God is not weak, that's good news. That is good news. God is described, after all, in Scripture because of what He does. He is a doer. He's not just a talker. I love that commercial that comes out. I don't know if it's on the radio. I know it's on, I know it's not on TV, but I know it's on the radio. I hear all that. It's about the talker. You ever heard the talker? You've never heard the talker commercial. Well, it's a, I'm not going to get into it because it's just a talker. That's all he does. He just talks. I'm a talker, and he works for some phone company. I'm not the, 
I'm just a talker. And he just talks and talks and talks. Doesn't say anything, just goes in circles, just talks. It's one of the most annoying commercials you'll ever hear. But it, that's the whole point of the commercial, trying to annoy you. I think that's what Bob said. It's better to be annoyed than bored. Is that what you said? I think that's their whole point in that commercial, to, to annoy you so that you remember, as I am right now, the talker who talks in a Hispanic accent, no less. I'm the talker. I think that's what he says. God is not a talker. He's a doer. Creation, the deliverance from Egypt, uh, the manna in the desert, all those reveal God as a doer, the things he does. It's not enough to say God is love, although it's there. It means something totally different when God loves me. When Christ dying on the cross is an act. It's something that is done, not something that is, that is said. God's, God's wrath, I'm sorry to say, is passionate. His anger is passionate. His, push, his punishment is passionate. But to understand that, you've got to go to point number one. God is God. God is God. His ways may not always be understood, but they are, but they are God's ways. That's who he is. It may leave you unsatisfied for now, but I'm not finished because I'm only at point two. Number one, God is God. Point number two, what is it? God is passionate. He is not indecisive. Okay, well, now we've got to couch it because it's in the book of Ezekiel also. Number three, God is love. It's in his nature. It's who he is. All his work flows from his love for us. All his works need to be understood in the context of his love, even his wrath, even his anger, even his punishment. Okay, now now you're asking, now wait, 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 where's the love? You said already, you already confessed that the word love appears only three times in the whole book of Ecclesiastes in the midst of that bloodbath that is Ecclesiastes three times. How can you say that Ecclesiastes talks of God as love? You painted yourself into the corner, Mr. E. Uh, you know what? It's tough being God. Let's set this. He is God, but it's tough. It's tough loving me. It's, it's tough loving us. It's tough loving fallible, feeble, fickle humans. But he does it. How do I know? Where is it? In the midst of his righteous anger, which is well-deserved. Please understand that. His anger towards us, towards humanity, towards all of humanity is well deserved. We deserve it. We have all fallen short of the, of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is what? That's New Testament. You're saying this is Old Testament. Yes, I understand. We all deserve his righteous indignation. We all deserve for God to say, what are you doing? What are you thinking? And that's the book of Ecclesiastes. What are you saying? What, what? Did I say it again? Book of Ezekiel. That's what it is. It's in Ecclesiastes 2. There you go. My point is that God is just saying, wake up. You are headed. He, in fact, in the book of Ecclesiastes, the book of Ezekiel, the book of Ezekiel, every time I say Ecclesiastes, Jim, you say Ezekiel. Help me out. Okay, Ezekiel, the book of Ezekiel is that he says, choose life. He says it in Deuteronomy, but he says it here too. Choose life. Wake up, and it's not just reserved for Israel. He talks about the other nations, and he says, you know what? This is not right. This is not right. But I still haven't answered the question. Where's the love 
Where's the good news? Oh, you're talking about all the bad things he's going to be due to Israel and Babylon and Egypt and Ammon and, and, and Edom and the mountains and the seas and the river and the temple and the people and the children and the women. Where's the good news? God is God. God is passionate, but God is love. Now take your Bibles. Here we go. Listen to the love. Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 17. In the midst of God, let's use a... a I'm taking my chances. In the midst of the divine gripe about our humanity, in the midst of, 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 of the divine rant against injustice and cruelty and death that we bring upon ourselves, here it is. It's almost little oases that exist in the midst of Ezekiel. Ezekiel eleven seventeen it says, I will gather you and bring you back. Thirteen twenty three. Ezekiel thirteen twenty three, he says, I will save my people. I will save my people. Ezekiel twenty forty four, I will deal with you for my name's sake and not according to your works. There's God calling back, trying to rescue those that don't want to be rescued, apparently. Ezekiel 36, 24, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean for my name's sake. 37, 14, I will put my spirit in you. You find these texts sprinkled about God's complaining about his very children. How do you explain that? In the midst of the anger which is deserved, in the midst of it comes grace which is undeserved. That's Ezekiel. That's the message of Ezekiel. We don't deserve it, but in the midst of what we deserve, there comes grace. I'm on your side. I'm going to rescue you. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to save you. I'm going to cleanse you. I'm going to put my spirit in you. It's like parents. Isn't that the case? We, we know our children better than everyone else does. Oh, we complain about so much. A man that never cleaned her room. Reuben never dressed up correctly. Always wanted to wear saggy pants and wear his, never comb his hair. Robert never studied, fell asleep in school. Those are my three children, in case you're wondering. Those are my three children. I know them better than anyone else. But you know what? That's my right as a dad. Don't you dare come at my children. You know the difference, right? Oh, I remember when my kids got in trouble at school. Yeah, I had experience in the principal's office. I'd go in. What do you think? To turn them in? What do you think? To say, yeah, good. Let me help you. No, to defend my children because they're my children. This is God who is, what did I say? Passionate. He is passionate in his anger because he knows the destruction of sin. He knows what sin does to you. But he is also passionate in his love. And if you don't believe me, check Calvary. That's passion. That he would stand by and let the very ones he came to save crucify his son. And stand by and say, you know what? I'm going to stand by because I love you more right now than I love my own son. That's love. That's passion. That's the passion of the God of Ezekiel who knows the consequences of sin. Sin killed his son and he knew what it was going to do. He was saying, don't go down that road. And they did. As we all did. As we all wandered off. I remember my mom used to say, you guys are like little chivos. If you don't know what a chivo is, that's a goat. You guys are like goats. Just always wandering off. Doing things you're not supposed to do. Eating stuff you're not supposed to eat. But she loved us. At the end of the day, she'd hug us. 
At the end of the day, she'd buy us clothes. She didn't let us go raggedy all the time. She, I remember well, she'd always go to Dorcas to buy clothes. I don't know why she went there all the time. That's what we could afford, I guess. But it was new clothes to us. And we didn't have, we had triple, quadruple layers of, of these patches. I remember that she used to iron on on our, on our knees. I remember it well. God, wait a minute. Hmm. He does say choose life because God is love. It's there. Now, I'm sure some of you perhaps are still saying, wait a minute. What about all, those, all, those, all that bloodshed, all the destruction, all the unmentionable things that God does in the book of Ezekiel or describes? Where's the love? You can't tell me that that's love. I understand complaining about our wicked ways. I'm sure I understand that God sometimes complains about us, but he still loves us. Okay, I, I, can, I, I can get that. But how about those, those terrible things? Terrible, terrible things. Point number four. This is good news, too. God is invested. Now listen, listen through. This is not some theological treatise, so listen through. He is determined, and at the Old Testament, obviously, he was extremely determined to make sure salvation followed its course. He was going to do everything possible to make sure that the promise he made at the very beginning would come to fruition. I want to ask you a question. Think carefully. And I'm going to read this question, and then you answer the question. When is a person who renders another person unconscious, who while that person is unconscious does unimaginable things to that inert body, who cuts, who slices, who dismembers, who disembowels, and all without remorse? When is such a person called a hero? When? When he's a surgeon when he does it to save a life. Unimaginable. God did unimaginable things in the Old Testament to protect the investment in you. He did the strange act, he calls it, a strange thing. I take no delight in the death of the wicked, he says. But I've got to protect the investment because without the investment coming to fruition, everything dies. Everything dies. Now, I will trust that God knew what he was doing because that's rule number one. God is God. And for those he destroyed, I trusted God knew what he was doing. I trusted God if, in fact, there was some righteous there in their own world, there will be in a better place when the day comes. That's God. God knows. I don't know. But God, protecting his investment, will do everything possible to save, save, and save. Scripture, it's called doing the unimaginable to protect his investment. You see, he is life. He is salvation. He would do anything, just like I would do anything to protect my children. When I was growing up, being the youngest of four, I, I knew how to take a beating. I did. I must confess, I had three older brothers that just found special joy in pouncing on me. One would hold my arms, one would hold my legs, and the other one would just wail. And they'd do a tag team, take turns, and keep beating me again. That's just like, so I, I got kind of tough. So as I got older, I figured I should try this newfound skill, so I decided to find fights of my own. 
And I can think of many people that beat me up. Oh, my, the line is endless. I got beat up by all sorts of people. Never knocked out, but beat up because I could take a punch quite well. So to beat me, to hit me, I've, I haven't shared this with many people. I even got my nose broken by a head elder in a church parking lot between Sabbath school and church. Okay, that's, that was me. I must have been a really nice guy. That's beside the point. The point is that he broke my nose, but he didn't knock me out. I'd take a punch. I went to the hospital, got my nose fixed somewhat. I can take a punch. So if you ask me a question, you know what? What would it take for you to give up your faith or to do the wrong thing? Which, go ahead. I got a high tolerance for pain. Maybe that's what makes me a good principal. I don't know. High tolerance for pain. I got it. But you know what, what questions I would always fail? Not if they could threaten me, but what if they had your son? What if they had your daughter? What if they threatened to do them harm? What would you do? Would you, would you fight back? I'd always fail those ethics tests. Because the initial response was, of course. Well, I've got to protect my, my children. I'm going to do everything I can to defend and protect those do with me, trade me, hit me, kill me. Just leave them alone. Does that sound familiar? Kill me? Leave them alone? That's God. That's God saying, kill me. That's Jesus. That's God. Kill me, but leave them alone. They're mine. That is the good news of Ezekiel. That is the investment that God placed in us because he loves us that much. He was unwilling to spare even his own son, his own flesh and blood. That's why I'm glad that number one is there. God is God because God knows best. Father knows best. Number two, God is passionate. He, he is strong enough. It's not that he is going to stand by because he can't. You know, if somebody that was you know, eight feet tall and 500 pounds was about to pounce on one of my kids, what was I going to say? Stand by would be easier because I'd get, both of us would get squashed. I can't defend my son towards such, an, uh, such a foe. But God stood by knowing that he could do. There was nothing. He could have wiped us all out. But he stood by making himself powerless, although he was all-powerful. He made himself forget our sins, although he knows everything. That is God. That is the God of Ezekiel. God is good. God is good all the time. That's why I'm glad he's passionate. I can trust him with my salvation because God is love, number three. And number four, God is invested in me. You know how I know? I'm going to go to the New Testament. I'm done with Ezekiel right now. Hopefully you've gotten the picture. So that you will know that I am Lord, said God. This is who I am. Yes, I'm passionate. Yes, I may do things that you may not understand right now. Yes, you may not always agree with what I do. But trust me, because I love you. I am passionate about that love. And I will do everything in my power to bring you to where I am. God is not trying to find ways to keep you out of heaven. He's trying to find ways to bring you in. We're the only ones who can keep ourselves out. Because we try to get there on our own. God is God. How do I know? How do I know that God is God, that God is passionate, that God is love, that God is invested, and that he will do anything? I want to close with this text. Go with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 2. 
I want you to remember this because this is, this, is, this is the good news of Ezekiel wrapped up into one verse. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. It begins with a very familiar portion of Scripture that I'm sure you've heard many times. It says, looking on to Jesus, I think the old version used to say, fix your eyes upon Jesus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. It says, the author and finisher of our faith. Classic verse. But notice what it says after that, which is what, what hits me right here, and I hope that you'll remember. It says, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Read that again. It says, Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. For the joy set before him. For the joy set before him. What joy? What is it talking about? What is the joy set before Christ that would cause him to endure the cross? To invest, to put everything on the table as, that part, as, an, as the investment that it talks about in Ezekiel. What is the joy? What is it talking about? Or would I rather say, should I ask the question, who is the joy? You are the joy. Think about that. You are the joy that caused Christ to endure the cross and despise the shame. You are the joy that Ezekiel is talking about, wayward children, children that are just hard-headed, insistent in doing the wrong thing, who ask for forgiveness time and time again for the very same things. We err, but God loves more than we sin. And where sin abounds, I understand Paul speaks correctly, grace abounds even more. Ezekiel, remember, For the joy set before Christ, he endured, and he despised the shame because of you, because of me, so that in the end, his investment, all the strange things he had to do, would come to fruition as you, in the end, enter the gates of heaven, and God can say, come on in. I've been expecting you. Have I got a meal for you? May God bless his hopes. May they become reality in your life and in my life. God bless his word. Let's, let's pray. Loving God, this is all about you. Yeah, sometimes we look at scripture and we wonder what's going on. We don't understand and we see things sometimes through, through human eyes and through, through just filters that just seem to make no sense and we don't understand. But God, I'm hoping that today you've opened our eyes a little bit and reminded us that in this In the midst of the chaos that is sin, that was our choice. In the midst of the destruction and the pain and separation and death and war, which is also our choice because it's all part of sin, you invite us to hear your voice that says, I love you. I am passionate about how much I love you. I forgave you before you even asked for forgiveness. I loved you before you ever even noticed I was here. I knew your name before you were born. That's the passion, Lord, and you will do everything because of your love. Everything so that we can spend eternity with you. God, I don't know how you're going to do that because we're a lot like the children of Israel. We're wayward and 
and, and we're self-destructive and sometimes we're selfish and sometimes we, we can't forgive or forget. But let us learn from you, Lord. You know everything. You can do all things. And yet you choose to become powerless and be nailed to a cross. You choose to forget and bury our sins in the deepest part of the sea. That's you. That's your message to us today. God, we live in a crazy world and things don't make sense more times than they do. But the one non-negotiable is Jesus Christ today. The one non-negotiable is that you are God and we will not doubt you. And if we doubt you, we'll come to you and say, God, I'm, I'm sort of wondering about this. And you can handle that. You're a God. You, see, you choose to see the best when no one can see it. Well, Lord, we humbly say thank you. And we choose life. We choose Jesus. We choose his grace. We choose to live with you and in you and through you. Teach us because we've got a long ways to go. But as we walk humbly, as we embrace mercy, as we act justly, which is what you are, in the time between now and then when you come, may you find us loving as you love and embracing as you embrace and forgiving as you forgive and walking as you walk. Thank you, dear God, in Jesus' name.